Number 10. Okay, so, anyway, so here's, this, here's the tale. I put a little bit of information on the board here. There's this guy named um, Alexis Saint-Martin. So he was um, way up north on Mackinac Island back in 1822, or Fort Mackinac, sorry, in uh, Michigan. And uh, he was unfortunately shot with a musket uh, to the uh, upper uh, abdomen. And uh, back in those days, the standard of treatment was bloodletting and cathartics. So I was thinking about the cathartic and the uh, milk and molasses enema. So he probably got milk and molasses enema. They probably slid his neck and let some blood come out. And that was sort of the uh, standard of care for a gunshot wound to the abdomen. So anyway, fortunately, he survived all the interventions from his health care providers. Uh, but he ended up with a fistula going from his stomach out to the uh, abdominal wall. So if you read, like, the course of his... Uh, his uh, uh, medical care, he said, and the patient would imbibe on like whiskey, and then the whiskey would dribble out of his uh, anastomosis. So anyway, this guy named William Beaumont said, aha, this would be like interesting to experiment on this guy. So um, the patient's actually illiterate, and so he, he, William Beaumont made him sign a contract so he could be his manservant and help with chores around the house, and he could perform experiments on him, so it was completely unethical. Like, nothing like this could ever possibly happen today. But this just was like the standard of care back in 1822. So here you have this poor illiterate guy who's the manservant of this sort of evil doctor um, with a gunshot wound to the abdomen who everyone tried to kill him by letting blood and giving him enemas. Um, he ended up surviving despite all that. And so the experiments that ensued included taking like bits of cheese and wrapping them in cloth and putting it on a string. And you put this, you'd swallow the string and then, like, seriously, they'd put like foodstuffs in the string and then they'd pull it out and see what happened and like the cheese would dissolve. And then they took samples of the, like the gastric contents and determined it was acidic. And so the whole idea idea was it wasn't like food started digestive process by you know acid in the stomach to break it down so that was the discovery but the historical interest is sort of pretty unethical experimenting on this guy and he kept on saying i want to leave i want no part of you and william beaumont the doctor said no this is so interesting we need to keep on continuing the experiments and so he'd follow them all all around he tried to get him to move with them to st louis or someplace like that anyway it took decades later the guy i think ended up dying uh but and the interesting thing is um, so William Beaumont was heralded as this great physician scientist. He has like hospitals named after him. He has army bases named after him. Um, but when you look back, he was pretty. It was a pretty disastrous, you know, unethical uh, experiment on this poor um, Alexis Saint Martin, who was illiterate and just unfortunately stuck with the musket wound. So anyway, we try not to do that anymore. But we glean some important information on stomach acid. All right, very good. Number nine. Thank you. All right, so happy Nurses Week. It's nice to be back. So I wanted to uh, do a brief medical minute on uh, an entry into the MacGyver files of quick, easy tricks that are nursing-centric. So uh, this is about how we can secure difficult to obtain IV access. So the frustration we've all felt when you've struggled and struggled and struggled to get an IV, and then that IV is subsequently dislodged as the patient is moved off to radiology or somewhere outside of our sphere of control, or the patient's just agitated. Um, so this is a nice little study. It was a single-site, two-arm, non-blinded, randomized controlled trial 
in 400 ER patients, uh, and the patients were randomized to either have normal IV sort of care or to have their IV catheters secured in place using Dermabond. So they would do a drop of skin glue at the insertion site where the catheter was entering the skin, and then they would do another site at the actual hub and glue it to the skin. And they followed the rate of failure of the IV for the first 48 hours, so the IV stopped working, the rate of dislodgement of the IV, so the IV was pulled out, and they also looked for infection and phlebitis and pain as secondary outcome measures in these patients. And do you think it works? It works. Yeah. The, the treatment effect is not tremendous, but there was a statistic. There was a statistically significantly lower rate of both IV failure rate and IV dislodgement by about 10% uh, in the treatment arm compared to the control arm, and there was no difference in the rate of pain, infection, or uh, phlebitis. And in terms of how you take it out, it wasn't really specifically addressed, but my gut is you could probably kind of peel it away. So... I think it's something that I wouldn't do in every patient every time we start an IV, but I think if you have that really tenuous IV, you know the IV where it's a two-inch catheter and it's like a quarter inch in the skin and an inch and a half out and it's flopping around, it's probably not a bad idea. Do you get a drop of Dermabond at the insertion site, a drop of Dermabond on the hub, glue it down, then slap a Tegaderm on it? It's a medical minute. Thank you. Happy Nurses Week. Thank you. Number eight. Hello, super friends. This is Don. With me, I have Kevin, our glorious paramedic, and I have Deanna, our beautiful and intelligent nurse. Say hello to the people out there. Good morning, people. Hello. Okay, so we're going to be talking about something very, very exciting today. First of all, a question for you both. What is this that I hold in my hand? Alcohol swab. Alcohol swabs. Great. What type of alcohol, Kevin? Isopropyl. Isopropyl alcohol. Very good, right? So these are the swabs that you guys have in all of the drawers in each room. Uh, they're the little things that you use to clean off uh, arms before you put in an IV, but they've got a potential other use. And do you guys know what they're used for besides just cleaning skin? Uh, Anti-nausea. Anti-nausea. Wow. Way to hit the nail on the head, Deanna. So... Isopropyl alcohol can sometimes be used for nausea. Besides Zofran, besides Reglan, besides all the other medications that we often give for nausea, you've actually got one in the drawer of every room. Isopropyl alcohol is actually used, not IV, but inhaled. And it's a beautiful thing called aromatherapy. Sounds like it should be used in a spa somewhere. So this is how it works. And Kevin, I'm going to give a... Swap to you and swap to you. Deanna, I want you to crack those open, okay? Then I want you to cup it in your hand ever so gently, and I want you to go ahead and take a deep breath out, and then in through your nose. Smell that beautiful alcohol. Breathe it out through your mouth, and you're going to do that three times, okay? So you are literally going to huff the isopropyl alcohol. Deep breath in through the nose, deep breath out from the mouth. And you can imagine when a patient comes in feeling nauseous or potentially vomiting, cracking two of these open, cupping them in your hand and telling the patient, smell this. Take a deep breath through your nose, take a deep breath out their mouth. And that's how you're supposed to actually administer isopropyl alcohol when you're giving it for aromatherapy. Now, 
How does this work? How does it work on the brain? Deanna, ideas? I don't know. Kevin? I'm with Deanna. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Well, physicians have discovered through study that it's something called olfactory distraction. And what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. Because we have no idea how it works either. But physicians, when they don't know how something works, basically create a term for it. And the term is olfactory distraction. Okay? Yep. So now we have a fancy name for it. Aromatherapy, olfactory distraction. Uh, they presume that in around 50% of people that this will work to reduce their nausea within 10 minutes. Might not take it all the way away, but definitely worth a try for a patient who's not doing well with Zofran, not doing well with Reglan. Maybe your cyclic vomitor, just basically crack open some isopropyl alcohol and have them inhale it. If you're too lazy to, in fact, go and find these pads in a drawer, you can also do this as you walk into the room with any of the hand sanitizers that are outside of them. So just go ahead and squirt two pumps in your hand, walk up to the patient and say, smell this. Okay? So, something worth a try. Hope it works for you. Hope it works for your patients. Okay, listeners, we thought we were done, but we're not. Deanna has asked an important question about, does this actually have a negative effect? And the studies out there say, likely not. They really, It's really short-term absorbed. Uh, it doesn't really stick around a lot. Isopropyl alcohol of most of the alcohols, except for ethanol, is actually one of the safest, even during ingestion. So it's much safer than, for example, methanol, much safer than uh, than drinking ethylene glycol. Okay, And then in inhaled form, really, it's, it's a safe thing. Um, there's even blog sites out there where pregnant women uh, say that if Reglan doesn't work, Zofran doesn't work, sometimes they'll actually be huffing isopropyl alcohol to help with their hyperemesis gravidarum. Now, I don't definitely recommend pregnant women do that, but I definitely think it's safe and uh, could potentially be an efficacious thing uh, to use uh, for people with hyperemesis, maybe as a home remedy as well. Um, hey, quick sidebar now. What else really works well for uh, nausea, vomiting? It's an herbal remedy. Any thoughts? This is something I also tell our hyperemesis gravidum people to use sometimes. Ginger. Ginger root. Yeah, so ginger ale. Uh, there's actually studies out there where uh, one gram of ginger root uh, for people who come out pro-stop is just as good as Reglan. Uh, so it's another easy thing that if someone comes in, uh, you can tell them to try at home. Powdered ginger is pretty ubiquitous and available, so a nice, easy home remedy. Okay. I think we're really done now. Any other questions, guys? Nope, that's it. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Number seven. Are you me okay? So, of course, I'm going to talk about something uncommon, but it presents very insidiously. I think you need to have a pretty high index of suspicion, um, and it's uh, a pediatric case as well. So if you think about an infant that comes in that's poorly feeding or maybe a little sleepy, a little lethargic, a lot of things on your mind, including infectious metabolic things. Obviously, the biggest thing we're considering is usually sepsis, but one thing to consider is infantile botulism. So it's pretty rare, um, very uncommon, but it's a very good outcome if it's identified early and can be treated very effectively. So how does an infant get botulism? Will they inhale or ingest spores? Um, does anybody know what the most common source of those spores are? Honey. It's actually not honey. Uh, so there's only two places that are really found. It's in honey and then in the soil. Um, and infantile botulism is more commonly from um, inhalation of spores that are stirred up from uh, the dirt. 
And so there's two areas that have the highest rates in California, where almost 50% are, and also in Pennsylvania. Um, and the two things they have in common are agricultural areas in California and industrial areas in um, uh, Pennsylvania with a lot of construction. Utah's the third. Um, and so these infants usually come in, it's, like I said, it's very insidious. It can start just as poor feeding. Um, sometimes they can be a little just generally weak or constipation. Those are the three most common initial presentations. Eventually progresses um, towards paralysis because the botulism toxin binds to the acetylcholinesterase um, receptors and basically negates the nerves. Um, so eventually it can, re it can lead to respiratory distress and arrest, um, but it rarely goes that far. You test it by sending off uh, stool cultures um, to identify the toxin and to treat it uh, it's probably one of the best named drugs I've come across in a while. It's botulism immunoglobulin, which the drug company has named Baby Big. Uh, and it's only at the CDC, so they have to fly it in. It's a pretty big deal. But uh, fatalities are about 2%. So you usually have a good outcome. In the end, it's just supportive care. So just something to consider, especially if you have someone, an infant coming a little weak, poorly feeding, near some construction site or living out near a farm. Something to keep in the back of your head. Number six. I'm, I do the some of the, the EMS stuff, and uh, while ketamine is not in the scope of practice, we are allowed to submit to the state a re waiver request to allow paramedics to use ketamine. So Inglewood uh, used to use it when they were here. Denver Health uses it. And doing some research, I thought I would share with you some information about ketamine because we do have the occasion to use it in the emergency department. It's known as a dissociative anesthetic. So it creates a kind of dreamlike state uh, where the patient may appear to be awake, but is not in fact awake. Um, we use it in a couple of different reasons in the hospital. We use it for sedation. We use it for analgesia. And in the emergency department, our favorite is, of course, the uncontrollable patient who we can't talk down. Uh, it used to be, uh, when I was training 30 years ago, Haloperidol, Troperidol were, were great drugs. We used them quite frequently, but their mechanism of onset isn't quite as rapid. There are a few more side effects. People tends to lower the seizure threshold. So we're seeing more and more use of ketamine for behavioral control. You can give it two ways. You can give it IV or you can give it IM. You cannot give it intranasal. Uh, the, uh, you know, if you have a patient who's out of control, may not be lucky enough to have an IV. So our common route of administration is, uh, IM. The dose is five, four to five milligrams, uh, per kilo. Uh, and then you can repeat that every 10 minutes as needed to get effect. If you are lucky enough to have an IV, the dose is one to two milligrams per kilo. Uh, and then you can repeat that up. Uh, to a total of five milligrams per kilo IV, usually in increments about a half milligram per kilo. The rapidity of onset, you might imagine, is much faster with IV, uh, uh, up to you know maybe a minute, and then it lasts about five to fifteen minutes. And then it takes patients' recovery time, depending on how much you give and how rapidly you give it, and a few other things, maybe. 30 to 90 minutes recovery time. Uh, obviously a little bit slower for something IM. Uh, may take uh, three to five minutes for onset. Will last longer, 30 minutes or more. And recovery time is prolonged. So 90 minutes or up to a couple hours sometimes. 
for your patients for discharge safety, you want to make sure that they're fully recovered for at least 30 minutes uh, after the last administration. The kind of things that you guys see uh, in terms of complications and things we have to be aware about when we give that medication. Um, laryngospasm is number one. It's very rare, less than 1%, but you should avoid giving ketamine to anybody who has known propensity for laryngospasm or airway compromise. Likewise, it causes increased intracranial pressure, so you want to avoid it in patients who have big head injuries or known brain tumors. Uh, also causes increased intraocular pressure. So someone who has known to have acute angle closure glaucoma or, or eye injury you would also want to avoid in that. Um, people have a rash sometimes, about 15%. You see it mostly around the head or neck. It's not an allergic reaction. It's just uh, one of the side effects of the medication. Um, the, the most common one that I think people see and are concerned about are the emergence type reactions where people get wild and crazy. There's some things that you can do to predict who's going to have that. It's more often if you're older than 10, if you're female, if you have a history of psychiatric disorders, uh, if there's a lot of stimulus involved uh, in the emergency department's wild, crazy, or you're giving them the medication for sedation or whatever. And um, uh, if they have a, a, a known history of, of difficult dreams. Most people tend to have the more emergent reactions. It doesn't happen very often in kids and the elderly, thank goodness. So my, my preference is always to give it IV, but uh, in, in I'm, I'm starting to go towards more a little IM for certainly the uncontrolled patient. Just kind of keep those kind of potential complications in mind. Number five. So I'd like to dedicate this to Sarah. <laughs> So uh, I was going to give a brief primer on atrial fibrillation, uh, sort of the emergency department evaluation and management. Uh, so I'm de-identifying the patient information uh, so uh, to protect the innocent. Uh, I saw a patient that was, let's say, 57 years old that came in with a, a episode of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Uh, the rate was 145, uh, and so what are the diagnostic and treatment considerations uh, based on that history for the emergency department? So as far as sort of uh, a framework for an approach, uh, generally the way clinicians think is they come up with a differential diagnosis uh, for what may be causing a particular sign or symptom. They come up with a workup, which will uh, change management, uh, either by making a diagnosis or risk stratifying a patient to a certain uh, treatment or disposition plan. Um, they undergo, uh, they uh, evaluate the patient for various treatments and come up with a disposition plan. So in a patient with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, uh, what are some of the things that you consider as far as a differential diagnosis? What are, what are causes that you've seen for either new onset AFib or uh, exacerbation of uh, chronic AFib? So it ends up, the, the things that we see most commonly for new onset AFib are people either without cause or if they have a cause, it's things like acute alcohol use, um, so-called holiday heart. Uh, other considerations are underlying uh, heart problems. So ischemic heart disease uh, where a patient is having a manifestation of unstable angina or lung conditions like a pulmonary embolism. Uh, so a good mnemonic uh, uh, that can be used to uh, give you a framework for uh, the differential diagnosis of atrial fib is the mnemonic atrial fib. 
So A stands for alcohol. T stands for thyroid disease, so hyperthyroidism manifesting uh, as a new onset uh, AFib or exacerbation of AFib. Uh, R stands for rheumatic heart disease or other structural heart disease. Uh, so those conditions would generally uh, predispose you to things like mitral stenosis, uh, which would put uh, stress on the atria and predispose to atrial fibrillation. Uh, a is atrial myxoma, so another structural heart disease, which is a benign tumor of the atria. Um, L are the lung processes, things like PE, pneumonia, or COPD exacerbation. Uh, the F stands actually for pheochromocytoma, uh, which is uh, adrenaline-secreting uh, tumor. I is idiopathic, and B is blood pressure, so hypertension. So in this particular patient, she did have a history of hypertension, uh, uh, and then there was ostensibly no other uh, risk factor for her atrial fibrillation. As far as the workup, the only mandatory test is an EKG. If a patient has signs and symptoms of uh, uh, alternative uh, explanation, like a lung problem or a cardiac problem, uh, they can undergo an ischemic workup or a workup for uh, PE, but the only mandatory test is an EKG. And then as far as treatment, uh, the three main uh, considerations are uh, consideration for cardioversion, uh, uh, rate control, and anticoagulation. Um, as far as cardioversion in general, if a patient presents with a well-defined time of onset, less than 48 hours, generally we uh, uh, have a risk-benefit discussion with the patient and offer a cardioversion. Uh, various electricities uh, or doses uh, of uh, electricity have been uh, suggested in protocols, but it's generally anywhere from uh, 100 to 200 joules. Um, as far as rate control, obviously that's something that we commonly do here. It's usually going to be diltiazam or a beta blocker. So, I mean, most of us use MD-Calc, uh, an online calculator, uh, and sort of predictably, just like other uh, sort of decision rules, you know, the higher risk you are for stroke, the more benefit you're going to get from anticoagulation. So the CHADS VAS score uh, is congestive heart failure, hypertension, age, diabetes, previous history of stroke or TIA, uh, and then underlying vascular disease uh, with one or two points for each. And generally, if you can get up to two points. And so based on her uh, uh, female sex and the fact that uh, uh, she had a history of hypertension, uh, she had a CHADS VAS score of two, and if it's two or more, generally, uh, you anticoagulate. So we started her on Eliquis after we cardioverted her here, and she followed up with cardiology. So hopefully that gives you a framework uh, for uh, the differential diagnosis of AFib, uh, the management decisions uh, that we uh, undertake uh, to sort of optimize patient care uh, who comes in with nuanced AFib or uh, uh, paroxysmal uh, AFib. Right. Yeah. So, so all of them are sort of FDA approved. Uh, I mean, the newer oral anticoagulants, you know, obviously have the benefit of not requiring monitoring. Diet is not an issue. Uh, avoiding vitamin K, um, and then. Uh, you know, as far as making a decision between Eliquis or Xarelto or Pradaxa, you know, they're, they're all considered basically equivalent. She had been on Eliquis in the past, had tolerated it, um, so we chose to do that. Yep. Any other questions?
Yeah, thanks. Number four. Hey, super friends. Don here. Five, fourteen in the AM. Ambush medical minute. Who's with me? I'm here. Emily. David. We can thank David for this medical minute. At one point tonight, he giggled to himself, looked at us, and said, ha, 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 it's 420 on 420. And he was absolutely correct. So the topic of the medical minute today is weed, cannabinoids, why we see people with cannabinoid-related complaints in the emergency department. But first, a little bit of social or cultural history. Dave is going to tell us where 420 came from. Uh, it originated in the 70s with a group of high school kids called the Waldos because they hung out by the wall in high school and they were a bunch of jocks. And they would meet at 420 in uh, reference to a Coast Guard, that guy that had a map to a marijuana plant that farm that he couldn't watch anymore. So they would always meet at 420 and get high and go try to find it. And he used to hang out with the Grateful Dead also. So the term started floating around 420, smoking marijuana with the Grateful Dead Society. And then it got caught on with High Times Magazine, who then went nationwide with the term. Thank you, Dave. Yep, I'd always heard that 420 was a police code uh, for marijuana. So David has corrected my understanding of where that comes from. Uh, other cool things David has enlightened me about 420 is Pulp Fiction, all the clocks are set to 420. So, And also Senate Bill, the Senate Bill that uh, California used to pass for legalization of medical marijuana uh, was Senate Bill 420. So those are also kind of funny things. And of course, today is 420. And in Denver, they're having a big 420 celebration, right? So be careful. Oh, they canceled it? Emily, why are you crying when you told me they canceled it? <laughs> Okay, so anyways, so weed, weed has been around for a long time. Uh, the first, do you, do you guys know where weeds come, comes from, where the plant was actually originally discovered and used? No? Okay, so it's actually a plant that's from Asia, and its first use was actually in China. So first used medically in China back in uh, 2400 BC, so a very, very long time ago. Okay. Since then, weed has obviously spread throughout the world. It's had a lot of practical purposes. For example, uh, hemp, uh, which is a really strong fibrous material, is used a lot in ropes and has been used a lot for industry. But then people also found out that, hey, if you smoke this stuff or put it in tea, it makes you feel really funky and people like to get high. So um, we're one of the only states in the country, the first ever to legalize marijuana. And as a result, we see a lot of marijuana-related complaints in the ER. You guys, what do you see the most? Just asking you guys here. Vomiting. Vomiting. Yeah, vomiting. Okay, yes. And vomiting definitely is related to weed use. And it's only something that's recently been discovered, and it's called uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, or CHS. But I thought weed was supposed to be good for nausea. That's what they say, right? And it's actually really interesting. Uh, they did a, it was a great thing that the uh, Department of, uh, the big kind of Department of Health Services, uh, the national government launched a bit of a study into it. And there's a paper online that kind of goes into the pathophysiology of it, which is kind of dorky, 
but I spent 30 minutes reading about it, so I'm going to talk with you about it now. Is uh, In weed, there's three major chemicals, right? And those chemicals are, number one, THC, right? Tetra, tetrahydrocannabidol, and that's the one that gets everyone high, that everyone knows about. And then there's other ones, such as cannabidiol, okay? So that's not tetrahydro, it's a much smaller molecule. And then there's a third one called cannabigerol, okay? So there's three different things that are active metabolites that you get when you smoke the marijuana, okay? So the first one, THC, is the one that has big effects on the brain and uh, makes people high. It also has some effects on the GI tract, okay? And that's net thought to be something that decreases nausea. So it's good for nausea, we think. There's the second one, which is cannabidiol, and this is the one that you'll often hear people talk about for seizure treatment, right? But this one is actually interesting because at low, at low doses, it has an anti-nausea effect, and at high doses, it actually induces nausea and vomiting. And then the last one is cannabigerol, and that actually, when they give it to rats and give it to, give it to people in studies, makes you nauseous. So it's got a pro-nausea effect, okay? Now, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome is actually seen in people who smoke weed and smoke a lot of weed for a very long time, okay? So the average kind of time that people are smoking weed and get symptoms is like 16 years. But still, these are kind of young guys, right? So it's interesting. They, they've classified it as three different stages. They get a prodromal phase where people oftentimes get sick in the mornings and they're like, hey, I'm nauseous. So what do they do? They say, hey, it's time to smoke more weed. So they smoke more marijuana. And then at a certain point, the, the, your physiology and your body starts reacting differently to those different compounds. And you get hyperemesis where you just get this really severe, profound nausea and vomiting. And that usually will go on. And on average, these people, when they start switching this phase, will lose around 10 pounds. And those are from big GI studies. It's, it's really damn severe nausea and vomiting. Now, this is often confused with cyclic vomiting syndrome, and they're really, really different. Some people with cyclic vomiting smoke a little bit of weed, right? But the people who have actually cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome smoke a crap ton of weed and have done it for a long time. And there's some physiologic differences too. For example, in cyclic vomiting syndrome, uh, these people have delayed gastric emptying. Uh, oh, sorry, have um, rapid gastric emptying, whereas cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, they have delayed gastric emptying. And then there's a behavioral thing that we look at to make the diagnosis. Do you guys know that behavioral thing we look for? No? People with, uh, with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome love taking hot showers. So often as part of the history, we'll ask them, do you got, you know, one, do you smoke a ton of weed? Yes. And then two, what do you do to try to make yourself better? And a lot of these people have learned that taking showers makes them feel better temporarily. Now, do we understand why that happens? Absolutely not. You know, there's a lot of different theories for why. A lot involve the hypothalamus, for example, uh, saying that if you get vasodilation from showering hot, it has an anti-nausea effect with these people. But the truth is we absolutely have no idea why uh, people feel better when they did hot showers. But you will see some people uh, rubbing icy hot on these people who come in with cyclic vomiting because it has a somewhat similar effect. Okay. Um, so how do we treat these people in the ER when they come in? We treat them pretty much the same as cyclic vomiters. 
We test them to see if they're severely dehydrated. We try to give them IV fluids to hydrate them up. We give them nausea medications. Uh, and the thing that I've found, and there's actually one study that kind of backs this up that says it's a decent therapy, is Haldol. I love Haldol with these people. So I give them five milligrams of Haldol. And at least to me, that's the best thing I know of to get their nausea better. Okay. Um, the real important thing for these hyperemesis people is just to get them to stop smoking so much weed, you know, and, uh, and that's always a challenge because they think that is good for them when in fact their physiology has changed and it's really bad for them. But you know, something that's a struggle. Okay. What else do you see people come in for with marijuana? Um, I mean, anxiety, some people get anxiety with it. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people get really anxious, right? It's like the head high. And I see a lot of people more from out of town than from in Colorado who come. They come in for the weekend and they, they grab, a, grab a blunt or grab a few candies and they, they eat too many or smoke too much and they, uh, they have a bad, uh, bad, little, uh, bad little trip with it. Um, and why is that? You know, A lot of it is because the stuff we have now isn't grandma's marijuana. Okay, it's marijuana has gotten so much higher in THC concentration in the last few years. The average, basically, you know, blunt has around. And I shouldn't say blunt because blunt is a. Do you know the difference between a blunt and a uh, and a normal marijuana cigarette? Well, I think a blunt is made out of like cigar. Yeah, good. The other one is just paper. No wonder you cried when you heard 420 celebrations were canceled. See, she is she is spry. Okay. So uh, so Emily is completely correct. But uh, in a normal marijuana cigarette, okay, uh, they think that there's actually three times as much THC nowadays than there was back in basically the 1960s and 1970s when everyone was running around smoking smoking uh, smoking weed so the, the the people who basically back in the 70s used to be able to burn down a joint and feel a little bit high come to colorado they burn down a joint and suddenly they're like oh my god why is my face melting you know so it's a lot stronger marijuana that we have nowadays than back in the past. So how do we treat those people? We usually give them a little bit of Ativan. We usually tell them everything's going to be okay. You know, compassionate nurses hug them and pat them on the back. And, you know, eventually we get these people out. There's one group of patients who gets really sick with marijuana. What is that? Like ICU type sick. Like intubate them type sick. It's kids. Kids get really sick when they get into high concentrations of marijuana. And there's been multiple cases where uh, it's mostly edibles. Kids find a whole candy bar and a one-year-old or two-year-old chows down a whole thing of uh, basically marijuana candy bar. And then it actually either one gives them seizure or two can give them a coma-like state. And a lot of these kids require intubation. After intubation for airway protection, it's usually just... Um, related to supportive therapy and letting their liver metabolize the, the cannabinoids and get rid of it. Okay. Um, so cannabinoids are interesting too. They're really fat soluble, which is why you get high off of them so fast, right? They cross in the brain, the brain's full of fat. And, uh, and basically that's, that's why it's such a, such a good, uh, intoxicant, but it also stays in fat for a long time. So that's why people who smoke marijuana can have a positive marijuana test, you know, weeks and weeks out, whereas people who uh, do other things that aren't as fat-soluble like cocaine, it's out of their system in like three days, okay? Um, 
but there's an interesting phenomenon uh, that kind of gave me a chuckle that basically people will smoke a bunch of weed, they'll have a bunch of it in their fat, and then if they get into a time of stress, uh, when their body starts breaking down the fat, they'll release, release all their cannabinoids. <laughs> so they'll get like a secondary high, oh. you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, so it's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and, and that could be bad too. Cause I imagine that there's a time when people are like have GI illnesses and they're vomiting and their body's like, okay, we haven't got nutrition based on all the fat and then they're hungry and vomiting all the time. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's funny. Okay. Very funny. Okay, cannabinoids. Let's talk. Uh, so that's the things we see people for in the ER most often. Uh, long term, it's really interesting. There's really conflicting studies about people who smoke a lot of weed and whether it makes them much dumber. You know, like the typical like, oh, what man, Chichin Chong stoner. I can't remember, dude. You know, that type of guy. And the studies mostly state that it does not. Uh, there's, for example, twin studies where you have one twin. Uh, who doesn't smoke a lot of weed, and one twin who does smoke a lot of weed, and they'll follow them for a long time. And at the end, it's not like you have one twin that's a super genius and one twin that's a stoner retard, you know. Uh, so oftentimes the studies say no, but then there's a new study that says that people have trouble remembering things better with really, really heavy use, you know. So interesting. Otherwise, marijuana compared to alcohol, and a lot of other drugs of abuse uh, is more on the mild side in terms of things that we worry about being terrible long-term, you know? So kind of an interesting drug. Any other questions about marijuana on 420 day? Nope, I got it all. Okay, Dave? Well, I was wondering about the validity of an allergic reaction from the marijuana as far as the hyperemesis goes. Like, I've heard that that is that they've grown to become allergic to, like like as we do when we mature as an adult. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, I wouldn't call it an allergy. Uh, what I'd call it is a tolerance, and there's some changes that can occur at a neurologic level uh, that make you, that change your body's reaction to a drug. So for example, it's not an allergy, but people who use uh, opioids for a long time are more prone to chronic pain and more prone to... Um, to things like complex regional, uh, what's the hell, how's that term? Complex regional pains, complexes, because their body uh, with their opioid receptors has learned, hey, there's a bunch of opioids here and it's changed physiologically, right? Your body's got amazing plasticity. It's able to adjust uh, to, to different things that it encounters in the environment, in this physiologic environment that are introduced or otherwise. So in a human who's been smoking a lot of weed, we all have cannabinoid receptors, right? There's two types of cannabinoid receptors, cannabinoid, cannabinoid receptor 1 and cannabinoid receptor 2. Cannabinoid receptor 1 is the one that's found in the brain in your GI tract and has a lot of a lot to do with, uh, with the effects of marijuana on you. And there's cannabinoid receptor 2, which is found mostly on immune cells. Yeah. So cannabinoid receptor 1, actually, um, you can have changes in that over time in their sensitivity it has to cannabinoids and the sensitivity that uh, and how your body reacts to it. And what they think happens is over heavy marijuana use over the course of years and years, your body changes how it reacts to it. So it's not an allergy, but it's a physiologic adaptation. And this type of pathologic physiologic adaptation to people who smoke a lot of weed, but uh, an adaptation rather than an allergy. Yeah. 
Yep. And the key difference, David, is is those physiologic adaptations are, you know, um, not not related to your immune system. When allergy is something where you take something, your immune system recognizes it's really bad and goes kind of ape crap, uh, and and you get hives and you get sick, etc. This is much different. This is this is related to changes in physiology. Yep. So, okay. Okay, friends. Mar marijuana, four twenty medical minute. Dave's laughing. Dave, what have you been doing recently? <laughs> Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Okay, people. Be safe out there. Bye-bye. Number three. Today is the first Sunday in May, right? Um, I've always liked that phrase because uh, Fitzgerald, in one of his novels, uh, early in the novel, before everybody becomes an alcoholic uh, and miserable, uh, there's a courtship between a young man and a uh, young socialite who he describes the woman as like the first Sunday in May, which I thought was always a very pretty description. You can imagine, you know, young, happy couple, and, you know, what things are supposed to be like in spring, except it's snowing today still. Um, so anyway, uh, literary references aside, the other thing, that I always have thought about is the first Sunday in May um, is this is a time of year when we start seeing rattlesnakes come out uh, because, you know, they kind of are dormant and or hibernate in the winter. They start coming out in the springtime uh, when it starts to get warm. And because we've had kind of a cool uh, spring so far, actually, there haven't been a lot of snake sightings. Uh, to this point, but uh, if spring ever comes and snow ever goes away, we can expect to start seeing some rattlesnakes, so good news. Um, Colorado has probably 20 plus snake species, uh, garter snakes, bull snakes, whip snakes, lots of benign, very friendly, cute little snakes to play with, uh, but we do have prairie rattlers, which are poisonous, and amongst the rattler population, they're not as poisonous as western diamondback, mojave greens, guys like that, but they're certainly bad enough that people can get sick from them. So, I wanted to talk about rattlesnakes. Is that okay with everybody? Yeah. Okay. All right. Is that okay with the iPhone? Um, big problems with rattlesnake venom is uh, there, there are two big complications that come from them, uh, coagulopathies and neurologic problems. Uh, and when somebody is bitten by a snake, first of all, uh, does everybody get sick? People are shaking their head no. About 25% of rattlesnake bites are dry, um, particularly from adult snakes who are just biting for self-protection and to get away. Uh, juvenile snakes... Yes, absolutely. Yeah, adult snakes have that capacity. Young snakes do not. Young snakes will typically bite and inject a full dose of venom. Uh, so being bitten by a younger snake is actually typically much more dangerous. Uh, so the first thing we want to know is, are they having any symptoms? And if they're having symptoms, are they merely local versus are they systemic? Um, the, the coagulopathy uh, will help give you a guide to this. If somebody has just some mild local pain, uh, some very local ecchymoses, but not a lot of swelling and no findings proceeding proximally from where the bite is, uh, it's very likely it's going to be a local bite. 
not cause any significant long-term problems. And we're still probably going to treat them the same way and watch them very carefully. Uh, but it's something you can at least provide some reassurance to somebody who's been bitten. Uh, if somebody is starting to show muscle fasciculations at the side of the bite, proximal, the ecchymosis and uh, swelling are progressing, then that's likely going to progress towards systemic symptoms and they are going to become much sicker. Um, the coagulopathy is caused by uh, proteins within the venom that work uh, similar to uh, their, their antithrombin. Uh, so it's actually the effect of the bite that causes the coagulopathy. As a result, giving blood products uh, and reversing the coagulopathy doesn't really help these people. The treatment's going to be with antivenom to basically uh, neutralize the poison that uh, somebody has gotten. Uh, so it doesn't work like DIC. Uh, but uh, the ecchymosis can be bad enough that it can cause massive local swelling. It can lead to rhabdomyolysis. Uh, it can lead to renal failure. Uh, it can lead to patients getting hypotensive, tachycardic as a result of uh, the significant coagulopathy uh, and vascular permeability. Um, similarly, the neurotoxin can cause some local uh, paresthesias, people will describe a metallic taste in their tongue, uh, but it can pr uh, proceed also to fasciculations uh, and uh, frank seizures in the, uh, in the patient. Um, initial treatment for someone who's been bitten is to mark the wound, don't cut the wound open, don't try to suck poison out of it, that doesn't really work, um, and to immobilize the wound generally at the level of the heart. Uh, when patient comes in here, what We'll often do, and with the consultation in toxicology, is we'll actually often elevate the extremity uh, because we want uh, to see if what the severity of uh, these symptoms are going to become. Once they're in a, a monitored setting where we have them, uh, we'll kind of want to try to uh, uh, force the circular or force the uh, the venom more into circulation, so we can determine is this a patient who's going to get worse. Uh, we'll start marking on the arm, the extent of where the swelling is, extent of the ecchymosis, and that can help determine uh, what's likely to happen over the next few hours. Uh, the treatment for snake bites is a product called Crofab. It's a, an antibody that basically binds to the neurotoxin, or the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the venom itself and neutralizes it. Uh, it comes in um, individual vials. Uh, they are several thousand dollars per vial. Uh, the hospital will typically have, I wish pharmacy was here, because it's not a lot. It's like three or four vials. And when we've had really bad snake bites, we've had to call over to Porter and get vials from us. They've called over here and gotten or taken uh, vials over there because uh, patients can take, you know, 10 or 12 vials. And you basically kind of treat uh, as the symptoms are progressing, you give an extra vial. You start with, you know, two or three or four, some sort of arbitrary number of vials, and then keep giving to, until symptoms basically are uh, halted and start to regress. Um, so fortunately, we don't see a lot of dangerous snake bites here, and I think it's really very rare we see any deadly snake bites here, uh, partly because we have good treatment, partly because people are pretty close to... Uh, to care, but uh, they do require a lot of, uh, of caution in terms of uh, observing, seeing how far things are progressing, and then being very aggressive with uh, the uh, crow fat. So, so it's springtime, so all you guys out on your bikes, stay on the trail, and uh, don't grab any snakes. Number two.
Next, we have a hypothetical 44-year-old female who comes in after a structure fire with 70% burns to her body. Rachel Duncan, our pharmacist, takes the case from there. Um, she did not have an airway yet. She was maintaining her airway, or GCS was 13. Upon arrival, of course, we immediately RSI'd and intubated her so that we could give her adequate pain control. So we gave her multiple doses of 100 micrograms of fentanyl. Um, we started her on a propofol drip and did appropriate sedation. And then we also gave her four liters of fluid immediately. So those are two of the most important things for burn patients, right? Analgesia and fluids. Um, another thing that we noted was that there was a lot of soot in her nose, sputum, and her vocal cords. So what's another issue that we think of that maybe not as obvious for these burn patients? Smoke inhalation, right? So smoke inhalation is actually the number one cause of mortality associated with fires. It's not the obvious burns that the patients come in with. So there's sort of two different roads we can go down. Um, the first and more common cause is going to be carbon monoxide poisoning, the silent killer, right? So that could be what ended up causing the fire. And how do we treat carbon monoxide poisoning? Oxygen, right? 100% FiO2. And um, if we still cannot get that carbon monoxide out of their blood and overwhelms off of their hemoglobin, we can always send them for a dive in the hyperbaric, hyperbaric chamber. Um, what's the second type of toxicity that we can see? Ian. Cyanide toxicity, yeah. So cyanide is also found in forms of smoke. And cyanide is really a toxin to our body because it changes us from aerobic metabolism to anaerobic metabolism. So what type of acid are we going to start producing? Lactic acid. So it's going to cause a lactic acidosis. Acidosis. So that's sometimes how we can identify these patients. So along with that, um, the fentanyl we were giving her and the fluids we were giving her, we gave her the antidote for cyanide poisoning, which would be... Anyone know? It's called the cyanokid. It's hydroxycobalamin. And what it does is it combines with cyanide and produces cyanocobalamin, which is vitamin D, right? Totally harmless to our body and helps pull it out of the blood. Um, so a couple of things to note for her. She did end up getting the cyanokid. The dosing for it is 5 grams, just flat dosing for everyone. Um, we will mix it in pharmacy here for you. It'll come up in a 200cc bag, and it'll be bright, deep red. You will absolutely know what it is because it is very distinctly red. You infuse it over 15 minutes. In fact, you guys can just hang it at gravity, and it will go in over about 15 minutes. It doesn't even need to hang on the pump. A couple of side effects from it is red urine. So their urine is going to turn red. They may turn a little bit red. They may have some urethema, so that is something to watch out for. Now, our indications for giving cyanokit, for her it was very convincing. She'd been trapped in a fire. We had a high suspicion for cyanide toxicity. Cyanide is a send-out lab. It's nothing we're going to get back soon. So some of the criteria you can use if you're unsure, um, a couple of things. If they have an um, unexplained lactic acidosis because they are in that anaerobic metabolism, or if their PCO2 is falling because that's a way to um, compensate for an acidosis, right? She actually had both. Um, so her lactic acid was 4.6, and her PCO2 was low at 27, so she had multiple indications to get the cyanokit. But I think from the standpoint of fluids, pain meds, and um, smoke inhalation, we did a great job treating her. Number one. We're going to discuss a hypothetical case of a potentially hypothetical patient was sent in with hypothetical diphtheria from a pediatrician's office who had grayish-type discharge on the back of her throat. Now transitioning you over to the actual medical minute. Who here is worried about diphtheria? Anybody worried about diphtheria? No. Why? 
because we're pretty much all immunized against diphtheria. Diphtheria hasn't been a problem for at least 50 years in the United States. We see in the United States two cases of diphtheria a year. So obviously incredibly rare. It's a real disease in sub-Saharan Africa, India, Indonesia. People die. Five, ten thousand people die of diphtheria every year, but not, not here. But what they're worried about is she had this kind of grayish membrane on the back of her throat. Um, and if you tried to scrape it away, it would bleed, which is kind of classic for diphtheria. Diphtheria in, I think it's Latin, means leather. It's supposed to look like a patch of leather on the back of your throat. I've never actually seen it. I've seen pictures on the internet, but it's, since it's not around, it's pretty hard to see. Um, but they sent her in and they got all upset about it. Diphtheria is caused by a carini bacterium. Diphtheria, it's a fairly weak bacteria. But penicillin erythromycin kills it pretty easily. But that's not the problem. The problem is that diphtheria creates a toxin, a poison. That's what causes the damage. Diphtheria classically caused a big, huge bullfrog-like neck, huge swelling in the neck, shortness of breath. Lots of tracheostomies were done in the 1930s and 40s because of diphtheria. Nowadays, we don't do it. Diphtheria, here's a great thing about diphtheria. It causes a seal bark cough, um, which was what they called croup. Nowadays, when we say croup, we talk about either influenza or para-influenza virus causing croup. But greater than 50 years ago, when somebody said croup, what they meant is you had diphtheria. Uh, but since we've wiped out diphtheria, now we just call this virus croup instead of what they used to call real croup. Um, so anyways, they, they also this uh, toxin can cause paralysis of your vocal muscles. It can cause paralysis of your chest. You can suffocate and die, not just from the swelling, but just from paralysis of the muscles because of the toxin. There is a treatment for it. There's serum, uh, an antitoxin. Uh, and at a time, there was a time in the United States, you know, back in the 1900s, early 1900s, that everybody had the serum because you had to treat diphtheria. Nowadays, there's only one place in the United States that has it. That's the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia. So on that night at 11 o'clock, I was literally on the phone with the CDC in Atlanta talking to them about this serum. I had, there's a doctor there and they wanted to, they're going to put it on a jet. I'm going to put it on a jet and I'll send it out to you. And I said, no, you know, I don't think that this lady really has diphtheria. She was in great shape. She didn't have a swollen neck. She didn't have a fever. Uh, the stuff on her throat, I don't know what it was, but it didn't look like all the pictures of diphtheria on the Internet. Uh, so we did diphtheria cultures, uh, which eventually came back negative. Anyways, uh, so why, why March 18th, big sporting event going on in the United States, March 18th. That's what made me think of all this stuff. Anybody? Soccer. No. The Iditarod, right. The, does anybody know what the Iditarod is? Sled dog race in Alaska from Anchorage to Nome, a thousand miles along the Iditarod Trail. Um, do I have anything to do with anything? Why am I even talking about this? This guy's insane, right? So, why do they run the Iditarod? The Iditarod is a commemoration of what they called the Race for Mercy. In 1925, I think it was, there were a bunch of Alaskan, therefore Aleutian Eskimo children in Nome that had diphtheria and were dying. Lots of them were dying. Diphtheria is about 10 to 20% fatal. So 
the closest place that had serum for diphtheria was Anchorage. 1925, there were no airplanes, there were no roads to get you from Anchorage to Nome. And so they put together a series of sled dogs like the Pony Express. Each sled dog would run, or the team of dogs would run about 80 miles, hand off the serum to the next, hand it off to the next, to the next, to the next. And they finally got the serum to Nome, Alaska, saved all these children's lives. Um, cartoon, movie, Balto, anybody? Balto was the sled dog, the lead dog that brought the diphtheria serum to the kids in Nome, Alaska. So now in Central Park, there's a big statue of Balto, and people take their picture in front of the statue of Balto. So it's just kind of an interesting thing.